Specialty Story, session number 179. Whether you are pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. What led them to their specialty? How did they become interested in it? What skills or traits make them to be a great specialist in their field. We talk about all that and more every week here on Specialty Stories. So if you have not subscribed yet, you should, and you should let your med student friends know and your pre-med student friends know about this podcast. It's here to help them find the specialty of their dreams. This week, we're talking to Dr. Peter Bayich, a urologist who specializes in male sexual dysfunction. We start the conversation by talking about how Peter first became interested in urology and male sexual dysfunction. So when I went into medical school, I didn't have any preconceived notions about what I wanted to do necessarily. Um, and it was kind of actually a coincidence that I ended up in urology because um, I decided to room with one of my friends from college who was actually a year ahead of me in school. And he had a roommate who was a fourth year med student at the time who was doing uh, kidney transplant research. And at the place where I went to medical school, the transplant team was uh, all urologists. So, you know, being a new med student and recognizing the importance of getting involved in some kind of research, that was kind of the easy uh, way to get involved was just to ask my roommate if I could kind of work with him. And he was very happy to allow me to do so. And then I got to meet some of the urologists there. And then for me, it was more than anything, it ended up being kind of a personality fit. I just found that I really got along with the urologists. I enjoyed being around them. They had a good sense of humor. They were very skilled. Um, but I still kind of didn't decide at the beginning. I, I really went through all my rotations and just kind of ruled things out until I realized that really the only thing that I really, really liked a lot was urology. What was it about the the personality fit? I think you're one of the few that actually mentioned that as a specialty. And I think it's a huge part of the specialty, right? The, the, we can all Google and we've seen the kind of stereotypes of each specialty. Sure. But what, what was it for you that really resonated with you? Well, you know, I hate to say that things do follow stereotypes. I think it's more, at least for urology, it's more about the type of pathology and things that we're seeing. I mean, it's all of a very intimate nature. You know, there's a lot of joking involved and just things to kind of lighten the mood and make the patient feel more comfortable. So I think people that feel comfortable talking about some of the difficult to talk about things, people that have a good sense of humor and are easygoing kind of gravitate uh, towards urology and, and certainly, you know, other specialties as well, but at least that was kind of what it was for me. Um, and I always kind of felt like it was important to be able to laugh and, and enjoy yourself at work. And definitely some of the other rotations I did, it was much more serious. People kind of had just a different tone. Um, but that's not to say that it was all 
fun games and laughing. I mean, they still, at the end of the day, did major cancer surgery, you know, kidney transplants, really like saving people's lives, but could do so while still maintaining a positive attitude and, you know, enjoying what they were doing. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around the field of urology? So I think that some of the misconceptions that people might have are that, you know, everything that urologists do is gross and that, you know, you really have to have a tough stomach to kind of deal with some of this stuff. I, I don't think that's necessarily the case for urology, even comparing to other specialties. I mean, I think that you, you do kind of get desensitized to certain things and, you know, I don't get grossed out by urine as much as I used to. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think you can have a very, you know, great, uh, career in urology, even if you're somebody that might be more squeamish. I, I almost passed out the first time I was in an operating room and, <laughs> you know, I feel like that's something that some people think, Oh, that means I, I can't be a surgeon. Well, that that's not, that's not the case. turns out I just learned that I had to eat breakfast and then I was fine. And it's just like med students going through anatomy. I mean, the first time you see a cadaver, you're like, whoa. But then by, you know, a couple months into anatomy, you're like thinking about what you're going to eat for lunch as you're dissecting <laughs> a cadaver. So that's one thing. I think that one of the other misconceptions is that urology is only for men. Um, I think historically it's been a very male-dominated field, um, but there's been a lot of effort to make it more diverse and think you see if you look at the statistics of our incoming and you know more uh the people that are currently in training and the incoming residents it's it's becoming much more you know diverse a lot more women a lot more people of color so i think it's it's a much more diverse field nowadays than it has been historically and that's been a very positive change and we in the field really want it to continue going in that direction and also going back to you know, people's preconceived notions of what urology is like, you know, you're not just dealing with prostate checks and urine all day. There's plenty of ways that you can subspecialize in really whatever area you're more, most interested in. I mean, you can choose to do major abdominal cancer surgery. You can choose to make your focus on fertility and helping, you know, couples uh, have children. Uh, there's a pediatric urology aspect, which is also really cool very fine reconstructive surgery. So there's a lot of different ways you can go. What, what, um, what traits do you think lead to someone being a good urologist? I think that the most important thing, in my opinion, is being able to make the patient feel comfortable and being able to make them, um, feel comfortable talking to you about some of the most intimate and private aspects of their life. Um, I, my primary focus is male sexual dysfunction. and We all know that guys really don't like going to the doctor period. Uh, so sometimes it takes some serious trust building, uh, before somebody will open up to you about some of these issues that can really be psychologically and physically debilitating for them people with incontinence, et cetera. Uh, I think they really are looking for somebody that will listen to them and can offer them solutions to some of these problems that they might not feel comfortable talking to anybody about. What does uh, a typical day in the life look like for you? So I probably spend roughly uh, half of my time in clinic 
and about half of my time in the operating room kind of varies week to week. Um, I also do, I guess in, included in that operating room time would be time that I'm doing procedures uh, in the office. Uh, many procedures nowadays in urology we can do under just local anesthesia. It's definitely one of the more high-tech fields, which was what drew me into it. Um, I was a, I went to school for engineering. I was kind of a computer, you know, guy and um, urology was all about robots and lasers and things <laughs> like that. So that was part of what drew me into it. And I'm definitely doing a lot of the high-tech stuff now. I do a lot of in-office treatments for uh, BPH or prostate enlargement. I do a lot of uh, male genital reconstructive surgery. That's all done in the operating room. And then in the clinic, um, I spend a lot of time you know, seeing new patients, follow-up patients. I do a lot of uh, management of erectile dysfunction, Peyronie's disease or penile curvature, uh, low testosterone. And then I also see a lot of general urology that includes uh, male voiding dysfunction, uh, kidney stones, things like that. Uh, other procedures we do in the office, cystoscopy, um, prostate biopsies. I do a lot of penile Doppler ultrasounds. So it's very uh, varied. Oh, and vasectomies too. I do a lot of vasectomies. So there's a big mix, even in clinic, of you know alternating. I see a couple of patients, then I do a procedure or two, and then and then kind of keep going like yep. that. For the the students who love the diagnosis and the kind of the Sherlock Holmes of the whole process, what percentage of, of patients are you needing to diagnose with something versus them coming to you just looking for treatment? Great question. I mean, I see a relatively wide variety of uh, things. I mean, definitely some of my partners are much more focused on one particular area. I kind of like it the way that I have it because it does allow for a little bit more of the diagnosis and evaluation. For example, somebody with somebody that comes to me with voiding dysfunction, you know, the gut thought for most, you know, providers in a 60, 70 year old man with some kind of urinary complaint is that it's the prostate. And usually that's probably the case, but I also, you know, pay very close attention to whether there could be something else going on. There's some, definitely some variable phenotypes of urinary dysfunction. Some guys have more of like the overactive bladder. A subset of those men may actually have their voiding dysfunction stem from spinal pathology. So it's pretty common that I off, that I uh, order plain films and MRIs of the spine. I've diagnosed several patients uh, with uh, spinal stenosis just based on their genital urinary complaints. I see a lot of men for um, genital and testicular pain. A lot of times those end up being something else going on. Uh, so you kind of have to have a holistic view and it's not just about the genital urinary tract. Um, so there's definitely, definitely a lot of Sherlock Holmesing, as you say, um, for, for many of these diagnoses. Yeah. Urology is is a very heavy kind of surgical and procedural based field. You, you mentioned about half of your time is operating room, half in the clinic. What percentage of patients that you're seeing kind of on a, a new patient basis do you think eventually you do a procedure on or, or operation on? Um, I would I would estimate probably about a third to maybe half. It's hard to say because many, the nice thing about urology and one of the other things that drew me to it is that it's not like one of these fields where they have a surgical problem, you fix it, and then you never see them again. Mm. 
these really become your lifelong patients. And some of the guys that I, you know, see even for a vasectomy, you know, and it's just a one and done kind of thing, they end up coming back to me because of some other issue. So even if you see somebody for something non-surgical, there's a chance that somewhere down the road, something may come up that does require a procedure or something like that. What does call look like for you? Thankfully, call for me is uh, pretty great because I'm part of a big academic center. I'm at the main campus at Cleveland Clinic. Um, it's about every 13 weeks I take a week of call. And when I'm on, it's pretty brutal. Um, but I do thankfully have uh, great residents who work with me and do the majority of the uh, heavy lifting. And I'm just kind of available to deal with um, transfers and surgical cases and things like that. I do take some call just to help out at uh, one of our community hospitals, uh, but that's pretty light and um, doesn't really require many visits in, in the middle of the night or anything like that. I don't think I've actually had to go in in the middle of the night, thankfully. <laughs> what, what I was just going to ask, what are some of the kind of urologic emergencies where you would have to go in in the middle of the night? So pretty common ones are um, when there's an obstructing kidney stone in the presence of a infection that's a true emergency they need a immediate ureteral stent um that's something that all urologists can probably be expected to do at some point um you know less common things that we do see a fair bit of being a quaternary referral center are things like you know necrotizing infections like fournier's gangrene and things like that um People come in with blood in the urine quite frequently. Sometimes that might have to go to the operating room. So there's a number of things. Um, other services sometimes might, you know, inadvertently injure uh, genital urinary organs like the ureter during abdominal surgery. So sometimes we might get called in to repair that or perhaps a bladder injury. So there's, there's really a wide variety. It kind of keeps it exciting. And I feel like, you know, nowadays the... Urology training is very robust. All urologists, all programs I've been exposed to are comfortable dealing with the everyday stuff that they encounter on call. Yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, so my subspecialty you know, goes by several names. Some people call it men's health. Some people call it andrology or sexual medicine. Um, it's probably one of the you know, relative to like oncology and, and the specialties where they're doing major abdominal surgery, probably a little easier lifestyle. Um, I would say that I'm generally home by five, six o'clock at the latest on most days. Um, and that includes finishing all my charting before I go home. Uh, my weekends are really my own. I mean, if I have a sick, if I'm not on call and I have a sick patient in the hospital, I'll sometimes go in just to check on them. But with call as infrequent as it is, I feel like I have a good amount of rest on the weekends. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the work-life balance component is really, of the surgical specialties, probably urology is one of the best. Yeah. How did you get exposed to and, and realize that you really liked the, the men's health side of things? So I, I, like many, trained at a residency program where we did a lot of major cancer surgery. And I really loved that stuff, but I just knew that it, it, it just wasn't going to be for me for long term. I just, it, it was very, you know, hard on my body to do these big operations day in and day out. And yeah. although it was great during training, I just couldn't imagine doing that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, 
I liked kind of the two to three hour surgeries with breaks in between and things like that. So that was one thing. The other thing was that seeing all those cancer patients and how they tried to get back to quality of life once their cancer was treated, I, I kind of saw a big unmet need and we had some absolutely wonderful, um, urologists, uh, where I trained that that was the focus of their practice, you know, restoring sexual function after prostate uh, cancer treatment, you know, restoring continence after people becoming continent because of their treatment. It was really incredible to watch people get that quality of life back. And I, I decided that was, that was really what I was going to become passionate about and what I wanted to make my focus about. And that's what kind of led me into men's health. Nice. What's the training path look like to become a urologist? So obviously after medical school, um, enter into residency, I believe all urology training programs include and kind of bundle in the intern year, Mm -hmm. which, um, can range, the intern year can range from between six months to about a year of general surgery. Uh, every program is a little different. There may be some still out there that do two years of general surgery, but I think that's kind of becoming pretty rare. So, um, I always include that in the number of, you know, years of urology training. Um, and there are programs that are five years total and there are programs that are six years total. The residency program I trained at was six years and that, and usually the six year ones, it's because they include a research year, which I did as my fifth year of residency. Um, and then I don't know the exact statistic, but I would estimate probably about half of people choose to do a fellowship. Uh, I'm sure that varies based on program to program, city to city. Um, but there are a number of different, you know, fellowship options available, but many, many people choose to just go straight into training and practice general urology because there's a huge unmet need uh, for urologists around the country. That's interesting. That seems to go against the general trend of further subspecialization after a residency. You mean that um, more, more, more and more people are doing fellowship training after residency? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the trend over time has been, um, but I think a lot of it depends on where people want to end up. You know, yep. people that want to do private practice, you know, general urology, I think is perfectly fine. Um, it's probably a lot easier to find a job out in the community without having, you know, wanting to be super, super specialized because they need people to do the general urology stuff. I mean, kidney stones, BPH, all this stuff is so common. And with the baby boomers and just the aging population in general, there's a huge unmet need. Uh, I kind of had an interesting path because I actually thought that I was going to do general urology in private practice. And doing my research year relatively late in my training, I kind of had one thought about where my career was going to go. And it wasn't until my research year that I actually <laughs> really started falling in love with research and <laughs> decided I wanted to do academics. So I had already interviewed at a number of private practice jobs for, you know, jobs around the community before I totally did a 180, decided to do academics. And then after that, decided I was going to do a fellowship. That's interesting. Talk talk about that decision algorithm. You you realize you love research. You can do research in private practice. Why why the academic side is just easier access to funding and and research that's going on and labs and stuff. Yeah. Well, so um, 
I think for me, it was, you know, we all do research and especially those of us that are trying to get into more competitive specialties, you know, you do the things you need to do to get the opportunities you want to get. And I think, although I did enjoy the research that I had done, there wasn't really anything I found that I felt very passionate about. And interestingly, I kind of stumbled into a basic science lab where we were studying the genitourinary microbiome during my uh, research year, and I got really into it. I got really interested in not only the science part, but also, you know, the writing part, uh, writing the papers, writing the grants, uh, and getting the funding to do more research. And I, I kind of really like that. I mean, that that stuff is very time consuming and it is very difficult to do, to apply for, let's say like NIH grants and things like that as somebody in private practice, because there's such pressure on productivity and there's, you know, very little ability to have any sort of carved out time or, you know, PhDs in a lab supporting you and things like that. So, um, for me, I decided, you know, I wanted to be part of an academic center I had wanted even as a private practice general urologist to focus on men's health because I felt like my training was robust enough. But after talking to some of my mentors, when I mentioned I was going to apply for academic positions, they actually suggested that I do a fellowship if I want to have a focus. Because otherwise, somebody without a fellowship in an academic position may have to see other things that they might not you know, be focused on. So doing a fellowship kind of allowed me to really carve out a niche while still getting to do the research, getting to teach the residents, which was a huge part that I felt like I would have been missing out on um, in private practice. So all of that kind of played into the ultimate decision to do academics and to do a fellowship. Yeah. Good. What is a, a competitive student? You're, you're still pretty fresh out of fellowship training now. How competitive uh, and what should a student be doing to be competitive to match into um, into the specifically fellowship you did? I am fresh out of training, but it's definitely been a long time since I've been a student, you know, seven years of training that I went through, including, um, fellowship after medical school. So I will say that it, it seems that it's gotten the general trend over time is that it's gotten more competitive. Uh, I wouldn't be able to compare to the exact numbers, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's you know, there's cutoffs or anything like that. I was involved in our um, review of applications uh, for our residency program this year, and we definitely take a very holistic approach to evaluating each and every application. But um, I think, you know, unfortunately, board scores are important, although they're not a deal breaker. So you need to make sure that you put forth adequate effort to preparing for the step exam or exams. Uh, I don't even know if they're doing some of those that I had to do anymore. Step one is pass fail as of uh, next year. Next year will be pass fail. Oh, yeah, step one. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's a change. Yep. Um, and then, um, you know, so, so do your due diligence for whatever the things that you can get scores are scores on are, you know, um, that you have to go through. Yep. You have to try to really work hard to honor your, surgery rotation. And if you're going to do, uh, uh, either a elective or a sub internship or something like that in the special in urology, if you're interested in going into urology, it's really important to make a good impression, get some good letters, things like that. Mm. Um, and then beyond that, you need to kind of be the 
whole package in a very well-balanced way. I mean, you should, you don't need to win a Nobel prize or anything, but you should show that, you know, you've made an effort to be involved in research to contribute to the field. You should show that you've, you know, made a contribution to your community through volunteerism and things like that. Uh, and it's always good to have some other kind of unique characteristic or feature. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of other things you can be involved in. I know it's difficult many often to find the time with all these other things that you have to do, but, um, and then lastly, with the letters of recommendation, just showing that you're a team player and that you're uh, easy to work with, reliable, all these things are important. And, you know, you can't always be everything, but showing an effort to at least be the whole package as much as you can, I think goes a long way. Do you see any negative bias towards osteopathic residents or students anymore? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I'm sure there is some uh, systematic biases historically, unfortunately. I think that with more and more programs taking a more holistic uh, view of applications, I think it's becoming less and less of an issue. Um, many of my you know, greatest mentors uh, through training were DOs. Um, so I certainly don't hold those biases. Unfortunately, there's probably some people at some programs that have unfair views of that, that they really shouldn't. Uh, but I'm hopeful that over time, more and more programs will, you know, look just as closely at osteopathic candidates as they do at allopathic candidates. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into urology and into men's health? Good question. Let me think about how I want to answer that. I would say that hindsight being 2020, I wish I would have focused less on where I was going and more on where I was at the time, because I think that there is a lot to enjoy at every step of the way. And I was always somebody that was thinking, you know, five or more years down the road, how, how was I going to set myself up for X, Y, and Z? You're only in med school once. You're only in training once, unless you change specialties. Um, you're only an intern once. And there are certain things that are bad about each of those stages, but there are also things that you don't necessarily appreciate that are good about them. You know, and then once you become an attending and you start realizing about the burden of, you know, uh, having your own patients, the liability, things like that, it, it's very different and it kind of makes you miss when you were a resident. And at the end of the day, you could, you know, go home, sign out your pager and, <laughs> you know, uh, you share that responsibility for those patients with others. Um, so I would encourage people to really enjoy every step of the way, you know, work hard, um, try not to stress out too much about where you're going to be five years from now and, and really just kind of focus on the moment and learning as much as you can at every step of the way. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a men's health specialist urologist? Um, I like one of the reasons that I decided that I wanted to really have a very specific focus, which my folk, my, I guess my 
primary area of interest is uh, both clinically and um, research-wise is Peyronie's disease and um, also erectile dysfunction, so basically male sexual health. It's, it's really cool to be kind of the last stop of the train for people with a specific issue. Um, you know, there's something nice also about having a very broad skill set and knowing how to treat a wide variety of conditions. I mean, I give primary care docs internists so much credit just for the wide range of things that they need to know well. I'm kind of, I try to be the opposite where I, I just want to know everything about a smaller number of <laughs> conditions. So I don't want to have to send a patient to somebody else, you know, for these conditions that I want to be an expert at. Um, so it's really rewarding to be able to just, to, to just give them the whole lay of the land for a condition. What are all the different treatments that we have, you know, being able to offer them the whole array of treatments, being able to take that journey with them from the beginning until, you know, the end, uh, where they're satisfied with the result. It's really rewarding. Uh, and that's part of why I enjoy just being subspecialized in general, specifically men's health, sexual health. Um, I really love it because, you know, as I talked about previously, just the, the very private and intimate nature of it. I feel like I'm, I'm really good at kind of developing a type of friendship, you know, with my patients where, they can, they feel like they can tell me things. Um, it's important for them to know that everything we talk about, you know, stays confidential. Some people are ashamed about certain things and I think they really appreciate that. And, um, you know, it's really great when somebody comes back and says, you know, I, I really appreciate uh, the way you listen to me, uh, the impact you've made on my life. Um, and I just, I feel like I see that more as being a sexual medicine specialist than, I saw in other specialties. What do you like the least? Uh, I would say one of the things I like the least is when I have a way to help somebody, but the healthcare system and or insurance coverage gets in the way. I think that's very frustrating. And I think that unfortunately, some of the sexual health concerns, which can have huge, massive implications on people's quality of life and their mental health, I think, um, unfortunately go a little ignored uh, when it comes to insurance coverage and things like that. So there's a lot of jumping through hoops that patients have to go through to get the care that they deserve. And that includes sometimes switching to a different insurance, et cetera, et cetera. That can be very frustrating just watching them try to navigate the, the very complex system. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of urology and, and maybe more specifically men's sexual health that a student coming up or resident coming up should know about that help them decide their path? So I think that one of, and, and this is a broader uh, change that's happening in medicine across the board, I think, but we see it specifically in men's health. Um, we all know men don't love to go to the doctor. You know, we've seen the increasing utilization of telehealth before and especially during COVID. Uh, and we've also seen a tendency of men to gravitate towards these direct to consumer advertised, you know, men's health platforms, uh, Roman <laughs> online and, and things like that. And there's also a number of these also direct to consumer advertising, uh, men's health clinics around 
yeah. you know, pretty much every city in the country. So I would say that the the whole kind of face of men's healthcare is evolving. Um, many of the, I'll call them alternative healthcare delivery systems are not necessarily offering high quality care. They're not offering evidence-based or guidelines-based care. So I think what we're going to see is an evolution of, you know, our, our current healthcare system to try to meet some of the needs of these men who are embarrassed to talk about what's going on with them to their doctor. They want to remain anonymous as much as they can. They want their medications delivered to their home. They want to be seen virtually from the comfort of their own home. I think what we're going to see and what's really exciting about men's health is how are we going to deliver that care to them in a high quality and legitimate way. And that's something I'm very passionate about trying to understand and explore because it's not enough to say, oh, men shouldn't use these services. Um, they should instead come to the doctor and talk about it. That's probably true, but many men just aren't going to. And we need to do what we can to reach the reach them where they are and identify you know, underlying medical conditions that might be otherwise being ignored. For example, cardiovascular disease is usually the main cause of erectile dysfunction. So I always check lipids on a man who has not had them uh, yeah. done, you know, and, you know, it's hard to do that if they're using an anonymous platform to just get a prescription. Um, so I would say that's kind of the main area, I guess, looking forward that I think is very much evolving. Um, as far as a more day-to-day -day urology uh, thing, I think that the technology is always, always continuing to evolve. I mean, uh, robotic surgery, which was something that really drew me into urology just, just over the time that I've been in training has become exceedingly less and less and less invasive. I mean, to the point where people are going home the same day for major, major abdominal surgeries. Um, even in, you know, for example, kidney stones, the technology that we use for lasers and scopes and cameras is just continuously getting better and smaller and <laughs> more capable of doing what you need it to do in a timely fashion. So it's really exciting. It's really cool. Um, I think there's a lot of things heading in a very positive direction for our patients uh, when it comes to quality of life things like continence and sexual function. Some of the implantable devices that we use are becoming more and more technologically advanced. And it's just really cool being a part of it. What kind of implantable devices are you using? So probably the most common one that I do is the inflatable penile prosthesis, uh, which is actually, interestingly, the oldest treatment that we have for erectile dysfunction. It's been around since the 1970s, but also the one associated with the highest uh, patient satisfaction rates. Um, historically, was was most used for men who have failed all other uh, treatment options um, for ED, but now, you know, our guidelines say that we should present people with the whole menu, so to speak, of different ED treatments, and then through shared decision-making, kind of decide what's the best for each individual patient. So I do a number of those. I do artificial urinary sphincters uh, for men who have urinary incontinence, most commonly after uh, treatment of prostate cancer. Mm. That's a very quality of life, uh, massively quality of life improving procedure that many of these men uh, are just have amazing, amazing uh, results afterwards. I mean, some, some guys come in with 
six to eight fully soaked diapers a day. And when all is said and done, they're down to just a pad as a precaution, uh, you know, when they're doing heavy lifting and things like that. So very rewarding. Um, other, there's all, all sorts of other stuff we do, like male urethral slings. Uh, I do a lot of um, grafting procedures for penile reconstruction for Peyronie's disease uh, and things like that. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a men's sexual health urologist? Absolutely. I have zero, zero regrets. I love what I do. Any last words of wisdom for the a student or resident listening to this, thinking about men's sexual health? So, you know, I think you need to look around, go on your rotations, meet people even outside of your rotations, see who you can kind of see yourself being like. It's not all about personality, but I think that with how much time we spend in medicine focused on careers, we kind of become a certain persona. And part of that is, is what specialty we chose. So I think you need to do your search and kind of find your tribe of, you know, who are the people that you feel comfortable around? These are the type of people that you're going to be around for many years of training and then many, many years as your career. And you need to make sure that those people that you're spending your time with are people that you like, um, that you can get along with and that you'll you know, be happy, um, spending time with, cause you're probably going to spend, you know, as much time with them sometimes as your own family. Uh, so it's really important that you like the people that you work with. And I've been very blessed to always have a wonderful, uh, team around me of people that I really enjoy working with and partners who are exceptional clinicians, researchers, and also people. All right, there you have it. Hopefully this was an interesting one for you, kind of a sub-niche within the urological field. Hopefully, again, the, the goal of this podcast is to really unearth all of these amazing subspecialties and all these niches that are out there that you can really narrow down when you're going through your medical school training, your residency training, and even into your fellowship where you can really find a specific niche within a specialty that really speaks to you as this specialty did for Dr. Bayich. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are looking for some more information, go check out auanet.org. Again, that's auanet.org, which is the American Urological Association. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.